Welcome to Hashtag True Story. Hello, I'm Michael. And I'm Sean. We're brothers, and we have decided to make a podcast about various events and characters throughout history that we've found interesting. In every episode, we will each bring a subject to the table for discussion in what will hopefully be in an accessible and conversational form. We are not historians, just two guys that have a general interest in history and are hoping to get other people interested through our style of storytelling. We by no means have the time, the knowledge or the credentials for this to be a conclusive version of offence, but instead we offer more of a taster so that you can explore these people further yourselves if you have the desire to. We are both new to the whole presenting thing and hope that you'll stick with us as we gradually polish our podcast style. Either way, we hope you enjoy the Hashtag True Story podcast. Okay, we're back again after a little bit of a break. Yeah, I've got to apologise about the break last week. That was all on me, not on Mike. I've, as I said before, started a new job. It's all a bit hectic, all a bit up in the air. There's no real routine at the moment. So once we get into that routine, we'll be able to fire these out regularly again. So I apologise for that. And again, I apologise because I haven't had the time to do the research this week, which means Mike has stepped up again to do a double for us, which is very, very grand and admirable of him. But I will hopefully, I said this last time, I will hopefully next week be back with my own bit as well so that I can share the load with Mike. But for this week, we've got a double of Mike, which I'm sure that you'll all enjoy. Okay, well, uh, I'll give it a go. I'll try and make this entertaining. The first gentleman that I am bringing this week uh, is a bit more recent than um, the usual. This gentleman only died, in fact, in... 2016 and he splits opinion Uh, some view him as a hero while others see him as an evil dictator the gentleman I'm talking about is Fidel Castro cool I'm looking forward to this now I'll be surprised if any of our listeners haven't at least heard the name before but I thought I'd try to do somewhat of an impartial rundown of his life Uh, Castro was born on the 13th of August 1926, in Baran, Cuba. His father was a wealthy sugar plantation owner. His mother, Lina Ruiz Gonzalez, was a maid for his father's first wife, and he was actually born out of wedlock. So his mother was actually the maid of his father's First wife, so he was being a bit naughty. Sorry, with again, his 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 his, his mother yeah. was the help for the family. Ah, right. And he knocked up the help. So his dad was a naughty boy. His dad was a naughty boy. Yeah. Right. Okay. Did he did he get with uh, Castro's mum afterwards? Or? In the end, yeah. But he it did. took a while. He wasn't straight away. Was he a secret baby for a while? I don't know if he was a secret baby, but he was he was illegitimate. Yeah, I should say. And he didn't actually go by the name Castro for the first, what was it, first, what, oh, until his teenage years. So, so he, took his, he, did, he took a long time to take his dad's name? Yeah, he was, uh, it wasn't until, what, he was um, 17 when he uh, took, his, uh, he took his father's name. Do you know what, already that tells you something about his psychology? Yeah. Especially because his dad was quite but, wealthy. But he, he, he did grow up with in that wealthy lifestyle so his dad did, did acknowledge, acknowledge him but he just wasn't he wasn't officially acknowledged as yeah but it still builds yeah. into that psychology yeah. doesn't it especially yeah. what he stands for later on oh yeah definitely yeah. definitely definitely 
he was, as I said, he was formally recognised by his father, though, when he was uh, a, t- a later teenager, and uh, just after his father married his mother. So he, I think, uh, I think he was about fifteen or sixteen when his father married his mother. Uh, Castro did, though, grow up in a wealthy lifestyle, even though uh, Cuba at the time was very poor, right. as you can imagine. He was one of six siblings, three boys, himself, Raul and Ramon, and three girls, Angela, Emma and Augustine. Fidel spent his youth being educated in private Jesuit boarding schools. Okay. So Catholic boarding schools. And he was meant to have been an intelligent child, but like some intelligent children, got bored with classes and found sport more interesting. Uh, while attending school, he played basketball, participated in track and field, and played as a pitcher for the school baseball team. After graduating from school in 1945, Castro entered law school at the University of Havana. It's at university that he really gained his interest in politics, joining an anti-corruption party. Right. So it's where he first kind of started gaining that that, that interest. And getting involved. Yeah. In the political scene. Yeah. It's interesting. Now, it's an anti-corruption party. Yeah. The reason is, I don't know if you know what was going on in Cuba at the time, because Cuba, Cuba was a bit of a mess at the time. Yeah. So it's kind of understandable it was an anti-corruption party. Cuba was a Spanish colony from 1492 to 1898 and was actually claimed for Spain in 1492 by Christopher Columbus. Cool. On, yeah, on their third attempt, Cuba gained its independence from Spain in no small part to, due to the US. Ever since the Monroe Doctrine uh, was issued in 1823, the US were against European influence in the Americas. Uh, do you know anything about the Monroe Doctrine? Um, no. Is this, this ties into the um, Spanish-American War, doesn't it? Is that, is that right? Yeah, there was there there was some, some influences. Basically, the Monroe Doctrine was that they didn't want any more, and it, it's a hang up from them obviously gaining their own independence. They didn't want any more of the old world influencing the new. Yeah. Um, they would tolerate um, colonies that were already part of kind of uh, European empires, but they wouldn't allow any more additional new influence. Ones. Okay, and any chance they got to get rid of kind of some European influence, they kind of jumped at the chance. Yeah. They didn't want they would rather have them as the main influencers in the Americas. I'm including South no, America they, in that. They're, as start, well they're as putting their stamp on the world, aren't yeah. they? This yeah. is America really, really emerging as a global power yeah. right now. Well it, well at that time they were very insular, but they they, they wanted to have control of the the yeah, area region. surrounding surrounding themselves. In early 1898, the U.S. sent the battleship, the USS Maine, to Havana uh, to protect the American, the, the Americans there. An explosion sunk the Maine while in the Havana harbour and killed over 200 crew. Now, to this day, they don't know actually what caused this, but it was very much plain, blamed on the Spanish. Right. Um, and but due to popular 
kind of demand from like the press and everything, it forced the US to take action. And they initially demanded that um, Spain uh, hand over Cuba and um, make it independent. Spain refused and declared war on the US, and the US in return declared war on them. The conflict lasted only 10 weeks, uh, with Spain handing over Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands, along with temporary control of Cuba. So the US trounced Spain. Yeah, well, Spain were declining massively. They were massively declining, and the US were the rising power, or one of the rising powers in the world. Lesson to the Americans! Yeah. The US didn't cede control, though, of Cuba to the Cubans until 1902, uh, but continued to interfere in Cuban affairs even after that. This is the thing that strikes me about America. You know, what they were built on was so um, grandiose and admirable. And it was anti-colony, it was anti-empire, and it it was all stuff you could get behind. But... The Americans built their own empire, you know, it was just in a different way. It was a financial empire oh, yeah. rather than a territorial one. Yeah. So, yeah, the, and this, this era is, this, this is just another case of it. Their, their, their empire is kind of an evolution of the British Empire in that they kind of half let them run, let places run themselves, but they make them rely on them economically. Yeah, yeah, they're like shadow directors Yeah. in, the, uh, in their countries. Yeah. It's, as I said, the British did it, but they were a little bit more overt, overt in your, and in your face about it. Yeah. Whereas the US are a little bit more kind of subtle. It's because of the founding beliefs their country was built yeah. on, you know? Like, and they, as I say, they're very admirable things, but the things that have happened since, you can't say it's the same. No, no not at all. But as I said, the, the US did continue to influence Cuba heavily, um, and that included at the time that Castro was at university. Um, in 1950, Castro actually, gra- when he graduated, he graduated university um, and started up a law office. When two years later, he actually tried to run for office as a member of the House of Representatives. The elections were cancelled. There'd been another coup. And I say another coup because there'd been a successful coup uh, led by the same guy in 1933, called the Sergeant's Re- Revolt. Fulgencio Batista is the man in question. After the coup in 1933, Batista, as the head of the army, pretty much ran the country through a puppet presidency before becoming president himself in 1940. OK, so he was pretty much dictator from yeah. when he took over. Yeah. Um, in 1944, after his chosen successor wasn't elected, he moved to the US. Now, what you need to realise is that the reason why Batista was so successful and managed to hold on to power for so long is because because he was anti-communism quite heavily, the US were happy to back him. Because what people, like, some people might not, might not know this, a lot of people will, um, during the whole of World War Two, Amer- uh, the Allies were very suspicious of the Russians the whole way through. Well, initially, um, 
Yeah, initially they thought they were going to side well, with... Well, well the, initially the Russians started off on the German side. It was only the Germans oh, backstabbing yeah. the Russians. Like we said in previous episodes, they, they, they invaded Poland at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, yeah, as, as you say... The Germans backstabbed the Russians, and that's the only reason the Russians ended up jumping to... Jumping sides. Jumping yeah. sides. The Russians have got history of jumping sides. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the Americans at the time as well, the Cuban economy was so heavily influenced by the US the US uh, the, the US owned so much of of um, kind of there, there was sugar plantations that the US people owned there was a lot of tourism in Cuba from the US the, the, the Cuban the economy was majority just relied on America. On, on America and um, it was actually written into the the Cuban um, constitution when it was first when it finally gained its independence in 1902 that the US had the right to influence um, Cuban policy but and hold on a sec we are anti-imperialism yeah that just, just yeah. also um, another thing to point out is that it was seen by Cubans and many others that the second most powerful person in, um, in Cuba was the ambassador for the US <laughs> <laughs> uh, in some in some respects, they saw him as more powerful than the um, the president, the president of Cuba. That's crazy. So yeah, that's how much influence the US was having over over Cuba at the time. As I said, in 1944, after he was, he his chosen successor wasn't elected though, he did move to the US, um, and he's there's there's totally he took a big chunk of the treasury with him. To handicap his, his the person who t- took over from him, yeah. Batista. Seedy motherfucker. Yeah. In 1952, he ran again for president. And when uh, the polls showed that he was third in a free horse race, he seized power and cancelled the elections. So that's why there wasn't elections when uh, Castro ran for yeah. office. Because he w- he, in the, all the polls, he was coming up third. Batista, so he Batista, decided. So he just cancelled him. Yeah, he cancelled. He he seized power and cancelled the elections. Yeah, and proclaimed, proclaimed himself president. All the while this was going on, Castro is getting more and more anti-government. Going back in time a little bit, in 1947, he joined a group called Partido Autodoxo, uh, which was founded to reform the Cuban government. The same year. He visited the Dominican Republic and joined in their failed attempt to overthrow their dictator. He also got involved in anti-government protest in Colombia. So he's doing a bit of a gap yard. He's doing a gap yard in Colombia. Yeah, gap yard in Colombia. Doing protests, anti-government protests, trying to help in a coup in the Dominican Republic as well. Um, so he, he's, he's starting to... He's very politically yeah, active. Yeah. After the non-existent elections in 1952, he joined up with fellow members of the Partido Autodoxo um, and formed a resistance group called the Movement. On the 26th of July 1953, Castro and about 150 others attacked a military base in an attempt to take down Batista. It failed. 
massively. And Fidel, along with his brother Raoul and I believe 25 others, were captured. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. While in prison, he renamed his group July 26th Movement. And that's Ooh. what the movement was known yeah. from, from then on. See, I've heard of the judge, obviously, because of uh, yeah. Byron people, you know, yeah. people like that, but I didn't realise that was That's the why, because yeah. of the initial attack where he got captured and... It's a bit and, short-sighted, you know? Yeah. Why attack a military? Was it 100 people, did you say? 150. Uh, still, it's a, mili- it's a heavily armed military base. Uh, what is it, dumb young kid? He's like early 20s. Yeah. <laughs> what would you expect? And it, the most of the group are probably yeah. the same as well. Yeah. Both of the Castro brothers were released early in 1955 due to an amnesty deal with Batista and they moved to Mexico. The reason for the amnesty deal, some people might see it stupid, like keep him in prison, he's a threat. He didn't see him as a threat. He was like 150 dumb kids who, um, who attacked their base and only 25 were captured and yeah. they, he just didn't see them as a threat and he saw it, it was uh, politically expedient and good PR to release them early. Yeah, these kids. So, but uh, and thinking there were no threat, he released them. Obviously, they proved to be a significant <laughs> threat later on in the story. It was in Mexico that uh, the Castros met with and befriended Che Guevara, who joined their group on December the second, nineteen fifty-six. Fidel, with eighty odd followers, sailed in a dilapidated cruiser cruise vessel that they bought back to Cuba on this uh, this dilapidated yacht called the Grandma. What a name. <laughs> it's a simple name though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is a simple name because it was, they, at one point they were meant to have like, having a bale of water out of the, out of the, the thing. It's just, it was such a state. <laughs> Come on, Grandma. Yeah, go on, Grandma. <laughs> Get us there. <laughs> um, on landing near the uh, eastern city of Mazzanillo, um, they were ambushed by government forces, and only 18 of the 82 got away. Uh, the Castros and Shade Guevara were among those that escaped into the mountains. But they lost all their supplies on the boat um, and most of their weapons. Later on, Castro would comment that they, they only had two rifles when they escaped. That's how much they, they'd lost all their spite. They were surprised. They weren't expecting to be ambushed, ambushed straight they away. They must have been straight uh, off the yacht. There must have been leaked information. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They regrouped though in the mountains and started making raids on small army posts to obtain more weapons. As his group grew, because uh, he was gaining more supporters, um, his raids became more ambitious and he would take on bigger bases. He started coordinating with other anti-Batista groups, because his group wasn't the only group. There were loads of disgruntled people uh, all across Cuba who were against Batista. He's, he was seen as this dis- dictator who who'd stolen power, who was corrupt and like siphoning money off the top. And it, they, it, There was a lot of discontent with Batista. Yeah. And he started coordinating with some of these other groups who were carrying out bombing raids and um, also sabotaging uh, the military. So what, various military bases? Yeah, here? yeah. Uh, it, all across the country. But he started coordinating with these other, these other groups who were doing, who were oh. doing these bombings. 
So there's a lot of disgruntled little groups. Yeah. He's trying to tie them together then. Yeah. 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 And he started coordinating with them. That's cool. Sounds off. And there, there was also, uh, I mean, they would also send supplies to Castro as well, yeah. who was still in the mountains. Castro's attacks increased uh, to the point where the government had to actually withdraw from the region. He was in Sierra Maestra, um, leaving it uh, in the control of Castro's group. Uh, Batista was at this point struggling to hold on to power. Up until this point, he'd been relying on the US support in the form of weapon supplies. But by 1958, their support started to wane. It was starting to become harder and harder for the US government to keep supporting this regime when they were getting pilloried by the American press. Because the thing about Batista is, like any dictator... He's using all the tactics he needed to to suppress his opposition, yeah. and that include killing people, killing his opposition, making people disappear. Yeah, yeah. And so he was getting a lot of bad press, and the gov- the US government were getting a lot of bad press from their own gov- their own press from supporting for, this guy. Yeah, yeah. Batista in the summer of 1958 was getting a bit desperate and went on an all-out attack on the rebels in in the um, Sierra Maestra region. He sent in 10,000 men to that region while bombarding villages that were seen to be supporting Castro, like aerial bombardment, like bombing them. Just destroying innocent villages. But even with the massive advantage in numbers and equipment, because at the time, Castro probably had nowhere, anywhere between one and 2,000 veterans with him. That was his size of his force. So this yeah. is, it, this ten could times. have been any t- anywhere up to ten times. It could have been yeah. what five times, but it, yeah, anywhere up to ten times the number of troops sent against him. But they weren't used to the guerrilla tactics that Castro's forces were using. Be, uh, they Castro's forces were split into three. Uh, one of the forces being led by Raúl, the other being led by um, Che Guevara. And they, what they would do is they would lay landmines or and they would ambush the um, guerrilla tactics. It yeah, Batista forces. Really when you've got less men, yeah, yeah. use use your your area. Use the terrain to your advantage. Yeah. yeah, and they're in. It's forested. It's mountainous region, and they're laying ma- landmines and 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 um, ambushing these forces, yeah. and. They ended up stopping this army from um, going any further. This failed military campaign destroyed the morale of Baptista's forces, and there were many defectors after this. So there was a lot of defectors who actually switched sides and just bolstered. See what Castro's, Castro's summoned the organisation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? From the, uh, the the raid on the military base originally with yeah. 150 people, and the the the. Riding the grandma into Cuba as yeah. well, which was obviously yeah. an organisational failure. Now, governing this, you know, sort of managing uh, yeah. and, and orchestrating this force yeah. that holds off a 10,000 yeah. strong army. Yes. Yeah, it's so. amazing. It's, I think, a lot of it, I, I look at a lot of it, and it's Batista is this corrupt dictator. He's, he's pretty much been running the country for what, 20 years? Yeah. 20 plus years? Because before then, it was like in, from the 30s, he was kind of in the shadows, running it from behind as, like, the head of the military. Yeah. Uh, with, like, basically puppet 
presidents. He's and he, and he's, uh, yeah, and he's, and then after that, president himself. Then when somebody else tries to get into power, he stops the election. Yeah. So somebody he doesn't like gets into power. He he stops the election and grabs power again. Uh, and so there's a lot of people who dislike him. And now they're willing to do something because they see someone being successful yeah. and they're joining up. There's another option now. Yeah, and they're joining. Yeah. After the failed strike uh, by Batista, the American government um, completely kind of pulls their support pretty much. And after it as well, um, the rebels went on an all-out offensive and pushed the government forces out of even more territory. In, in the end, they near enough split Cuba in half um, and started blockading their part of uh, Cuba from the other part. The mass- uh, And they controlled factories and they controlled schools and hospitals in this, in this big region of Cuba now. Yeah. Um, you know what? It shows you another short-sighted version of this isn't just America, this is Western governments in a whole... Uh, interfering in governmental politics on a global scale because you know they're pulling their support yeah. at that time and we you're obviously explaining what happens next but you, you know it's just uh it seems short-sighted yeah doesn't it in the grand scheme of things but we'll get into that because yeah. yeah yeah the batista government collapsed by the end of 1958 uh, batista fled to the dominican republic a provisional government was created with Manuel Oratia as president and Jose Miro Cardona as prime minister. Castro was made commander-in-chief of the military. But about a month after being appointed, uh, Cardona mysteriously resigned as prime minister and Castro was sworn in. So he was only prime minister for about a month. And then, for some reason... Some reason, maybe. Yeah. Uh, look, I know things about yeah. you. Yeah. Look, you know I, I control these armed forces, right? You know I could. <laughs> That's the thing here, isn't it? I know it's we've been talking about Batista, but you've got to be aware of the time. I mean, I know it's the country that he's running, but mm. you've got to be aware that certain tactics are used. Yeah. By both sides in this, yeah. because. Yeah. That was just. A yeah, and I, I obviously. From where on uh, we're at at the moment, it sounds like Castro sounds like he's kind of the good guy, yeah. but not a, people need to realise that nobody is a hundred percent good, and nobody is not many people are hundred percent bad, and yeah, we we start heading towards why kind of he's got the bad press he gets. Yes, yeah. and it's why he's a marmite character. Some love him, some hate him. Initially, Castro denied being a communist. He and the re, and he did this all the way through his campaign, his campaign to um, overthrow Batista, and it's thought that one of the main reasons is he didn't want to alienate people who didn't believe in the communist movement. The other issue, Mike, is at the time their economy is so reliant on the Americans, yeah. and if he just you know in, you know creates this yeah. communist regime out of yeah. that, then it's plus also if he starts go, he starts waving around the uh, hammer and sickle. And uh, everything, then America are definitely not pulling out support of Batista yeah. as well. Yeah, it's strategic. So, yeah, for a long while, 
he he denied being communist. His brother Raoul and obviously Che Guevara were like they 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 wore their political beliefs on their sleeves. They yeah. they did they, they everyone knew exactly. They they knew they were Marxists and Leninists. They knew that what what they believed, and they they said it straight. They straight said it straight to your face. But Fidel for a long while denied what his political beliefs were. But his um, his initial policies told a different story. Uh, for instance, near enough after straight after he became prime minister, he nationalised factories and plantations, many of which were owned by Americans. Um, he nationalised them, and they it really pissed off the Americans because he um, <laughs> to take the piss gave him hardly anything for the land uh, on like lower like land prices to match the prices that they initially paid for them like years and years ago. Um, so without deals, inflation. Yeah, think, yeah. yeah. And the economy was growing at a ridiculous rate yeah, at that time and, as well. And as I said, the majority of the, the Cuban economy relied on on America and they there was a lot of Americans living in Cuba and there was a lot of businesses in Cuba that were owned by Americans and it, suddenly they've just had it taken away from so them. So their life is taken away. Yeah. Yeah. So... He put through an act that limited land ownership, so you could only own a certain amount of land, and made it illegal for non-Cubans to own land. This was in the first few years of him him coming into power. He also appointed a lot of Marxists into important positions. And this was all of this was obviously getting the Americans riled up. But he still, he still, even at, well. even at the, he's still even at the, this point, he's not admitting that he's 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 a communist. He started increasing because the Americans are starting to pull out their support. Because initially, when when they first when they first got into power, the Americans acknowledged them. Okay, yeah. but but they're slowly but surely coming aware of the, where they lie with. Yeah, politically, the, politically. yeah. No, I can. I can. Well, you can. You can see exactly why the Americans are getting fucked off about this. Yeah. Like they're they're citizens of heavily invested in this country, and they're just literally getting it pulled yeah. away from them. The thing is that the problem is that you reap what you sow. The Americans had such a massive influence to the point where they were propping up a dictator for twenty years in that country, and the only other option was. Hard left communist, yeah. So it's extreme times. So to to basically counteract the the lack of support from the US, they he increased diplomatic relations with the USSR, um, signing a trade agreement to get oil from them. They also started sending over uh, the USSR started sending over advisors, helping them organize their military. Okay, Um, on. The 3rd of January, 1961, the US broke off all diplomatic relations with Cuba. And on the 14th of April of the same year, Castro admitted to the obvious and proclaimed Cuba a socialist state, finally. So this is a few years after. Yeah. And he's finally admitted it's a socialist state. Do you know what? It seems like he started thinking, I mean, I know, well, agree or not with the way he's taken it, or his beliefs, but the way he's... Uh, orchestrated it. Um, it's a lot more methodical than his early years. Yeah, and he he knows that he can't come out and say 
on yeah. socialist at, at the yeah. earlier stage because it would have been yeah. Batista would have got the, the support he needed. Yeah, I, I think it's it's uh, he's finally yeah. at a point where he's probably feels secure in the support of the USSR that he obviously the other superpower at the time. Yeah, that he can come out against the US, and now this is this is horrendous for the US. The US like their fear is. To have a communist state, this ally of that their their, their, their biggest enemy, right off the coast, yeah, right off the coast of their of Florida. Mm. Now comes the infamous Bay of Pigs mess. Do you know anything about the Bay of Pigs? You might have, you've probably heard the name. Yeah, vaguely. Um... It's basically what happened was that, and the Americans denied it for a long time. I think the papers have actually been released now, but. Um, 1,400 Cuban exiles with the aid and training of the CIA invaded Cuba in an attempt to overthrow Castro. Um, It was a massive disaster, though, and over a 1,000 captured and hundreds dead. It was was a complete and utter mess. A complete failure. And, yeah, uh, as I said, for years, the Americans completely denied this actually happened. Do you know it has anything to do with them? Yeah, anything yeah. to do with them. Um, but it has come out in recent years that they, they did help. All it did, though, was help Castro promote his agenda um, and gain support in Cuba. In February of 1962, the US implemented a full trade embargo on Cuba. The Bay of Pigs incident only increased Castro's relations with the Soviet Union. Worried that the US might try and invade again Castro and the Soviet Premier, Nikita Khrushchev thought it would be a fantastic idea to place nuclear missiles 90 miles off the coast of the US and Cuba. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we know it wasn't a fantastic idea. (laughs) Nearly led to World War III and global annihilation. Yes. Obviously, the US when they discovered this plan, weren't too thrilled. Uh, President Kennedy demanded any missiles be removed and ordered the Navy to search every ship heading for Cuba. The next 13 days were probably the closest humanity has ever gotten to uh, self-eradication. It's the closest we've probably ever come to to Armageddon, yeah. or self-caused Armageddon anyway. It was only through some supreme back-channeling between the two leaders of the superpowers that a nuclear exchange was completely avoided. In exchange for removing missiles from Cuba, the US agreed not to invade Cuba. They also, we found out in recent, in kind of later years, that they also agreed to remove um, their missile system from Turkey. The US agreed, because that was a big thing that the USSR were really pissed well, yeah, off. Yeah, it's the same thing. Though. Yeah, it's, it is it's exactly the same, same, it's the same thing. thing. We were on missiles yeah. really close to us. You don't want missiles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they they, they agreed in the, on the down low to also. Oh, they couldn't really release that, that as PR wise. No, because it would have been horrendous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, thing is though, you got to put your hat to Khrushchev on that one because he's taken the PR hit on the chin because they didn't release that. No. They had got that deal, but I think that was part of it, wasn't it? The Americans were like, look, you can't tell and anyone. We'll do it, but you can't tell anyone. Imagine, imagine if the leaders during that time were the leaders that we that were oh, we had fuck. during World War One, 
it would have been a. F- or oh, the league. I thought you were going to say today. Yeah. Christ oh, Almighty. God. It would be over. Fuck. Yeah. Imagine hell. Trump <laughs> trying to do no. No, no good deal. No, 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 no deal. No. no. <laughs> oh God, it would be horrendous. Oh. So th- yeah, this is supreme kind of statesmanship that's that's got us through that. Yeah, both sides, both sides, both sides yeah. were yeah. And as I said, if it if it was any worse leadership, you, we yeah we wouldn't be here today. Yeah, it was good. Well, it was a good chance we wouldn't be here today. I'm not going to go into kind of every little thing that happened after that period um, because it, I'll be going on. I'll be going on for hours. He seemed to spend the next few years trying to become a leading voice in the pro-communist parts of the world and, by extension, a thorn in America's side. In the 70s, he helped pro-Soviet forces in Angola, Ethiopia and Yemen with no real success. They were complete fails, but he did send military help to those places. Yeah. Uh, even though the US promised uh, not to invade Cuba, they didn't promise they wouldn't try to bring it down by other means. And there were other means used. Yeah, there were other means used. Um, Cuban intelligence estimates that there have been anywhere up to 638 attempts on Castro's life by the US. Yeah. Uh, these are CIA-led assassination attempts. And here are some of the slightly more crazy ones. I, Just the I've, I've got ideas or, or actual attempts. The first one was Fidel loved scuba diving. So one aborted plan was to plant a bomb in a seashell at, on the sea floor, then trigger it as he, was, he swam to it. <laughs> okay, but they decided that it was just it was too much. It was too much. Yeah, it was just it, yeah. But that was that was an aborted idea. Yeah, I like it. Another was to give him a contaminated swimsuit, and they actually I think they actually tried that, but the lawyer that they gave the suit to changed his mind at the last minute and didn't give it to him. Okay. Yeah, so they actually tried that. It was it, it would have given him a deadly skin um, condition. In the sixties, they tried to poison his milkshake. It's this weird thing. I don't know why, but they they basically snuck a um, a poison in tablet form to an agent working as a waiter in a hotel he was staying at, and. For some reason, it got stuck in the freezer. This pill, and he so he didn't have a chance to actually drop the poison in in the milkshake. But they did actually try this. Oh, that's such a bodge job, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is a massive bodge job. One of his ex lovers reports that she agreed to deliver him a jar of poisoned ice cream, but he discovered the plot, and when confronting her, he asked her if she'd come to kill him. He handed her a gun, took a puff of his much-loved cigar, and closed his eyes, knowing that she would, didn't have the bottle to do it. So he gave her a loaded gun, stood there, took a puff out of his cigar, closed his eyes, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. He's got some guys. Yeah. In 1967, on a visit to the UN, the CIA tried to get one of his entourage to get him to smoke a poison cigar. But the Cuban they 
uh, recruited was fired before it could happen. They got to the point where they actually poisoned his cigars, but they obviously found something out and they sacked the guy before it, before it could go through with it. Yeah. But they did get to the point where they poisoned his cigars. Oh, the poison, man. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah. It's fuck up after fuck up. Yeah. Uh, and this is like the world superpower. In 1963, a CIA agent was given a pen syringe. Right. A pen. Yeah. There's a syringe as well. It's proper James Bond stuff. Filled with poison. He was arrested before he could actually make the attempt, though. Okay. They tried hard, didn't they? Yeah, so, I mean, those are some of the, the crazier attempts. But, as I said, there are hundreds, hundreds of attempts on his life. Under Castro, the Cuban people uh, enjoyed universal health care, uh, which, which massively decreased child mortality rates. And he's, he's praised for that. And he improved the education system. It's, it's, it was something that he focused on straight from the beginning. He, I think they built more schools in the first year of Castro's reign and opened more classrooms in the first year of Castro's reign than they did in the 30 years previous to that. So he, he had a massive focus on, on education and healthcare. Yeah. Um, and he got liter- literacy up to 98%. In, in Cuba, which I think is one of the highest in the world, is the literacy in Cuba, and it still is yeah. today. Yeah, okay, systems, uh, yeah. Well. But, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, obviously, they're the good things about what he he brought, but it's not all good. Uh, like all totalitarian regimes, it wasn't all roses. Um, all opposition and dissenting voices were removed, uh, be that imprisonment, exile, or execution. Tens of thousands were killed over the years. And, I mean, there's recorded evidence that uh, alone 5,600 people yeah. were died by uh, died by firing squad. And let's not brush over that, because this is brutal, brutal. No, no, no this like, is... This, this, yeah. I mean, we've, we've got to be careful to give, you know, to, to paint the, the neutral figure here, because we've, you know, we've given the story and his justifications the whole way through, but the actions that he's taken at this later stage as well, and to maintain power... Yeah. Uh, sometimes he's doing the same stuff that he was fighting against yeah yeah exactly and probably bigger numbers as well he started he he, he lasted for longer and killed more people yeah and that's and it's it's people who who he doesn't agree with that's part of the problem with communism part of the problem with communism it only works as everyone agrees with it If, if if not everybody agrees with it then shit like this happens yeah and that's why, at this present moment in time, you just can't... It can't work. Yeah, definitely. It can't, it, it can't work, because a regime needs to be brutal. Because you're making people give up their property rights. They're, you're making people kind of work for nothing. <laughs> work yeah. for the state, and get you... The state controls everything. Yeah. I mean, he's brought their state on. If you look on a state level... Yeah. It's difficult. I mean, it's depend. It depends how you are politically. If where you stand politically to where you stand on Fidel yeah. Castro, some I don't know. I mean, I'm of the opinion that that many deaths and that much uh, human rights atrocities can't be worth the result that comes at the end. Yeah. But some people might think that 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 is a price that has to be paid. I don't know. It's uh, also the fact that people haven't got a choice. Uh, so many people, so many people, hundreds of thousands of Cubans, 
left Cuba because they're either forced to or they just they choose to because they can't deal with the regime. They can't. They want a better life, and they have yeah, and got no choice in the matter th- while in Cuba. I think your emphasis on choice is the one as well. Yeah, like living in under a regime where you literally have no control under how you're governed. Yeah, imagine, imagine if you can, you're not allowed to own your own home. Imagine yeah. if you're given everything that you've got by your government, and you've got no choice in the matter. And it's not like every four or five years you can go to a booth, and if you don't like what's going on, you can vote on it because there's only one party because he destroys all opposition yeah. that are, that jump up and yeah that's not a good thing no. not a good thing and you lose a lot of the best and the brightest because the best and the brightest want to make something themselves so they move to the US in 2008 Fidel handed over power and the presidency to his brother Raul due to his declining health in fact, Rao had been acting as president since 2006 because of the declining health of his, his older brother anyway. He's an old man. Yeah, very old man. Fidel Castro died on the 25th of November 2016 at the age of 90. His brother, Raul, still runs Cuba. But that's that's Fidel Castro, and as I started, I said at the beginning, some love him, some hate him, and uh, I mean, I err towards the, him okay. being a bad thing. It's difficult because you don't know what would have filled that void. No, no. You, I mean, you can guess. You can guess that he would. if Batista had carried on, would you have said he'd been much worse? He would have been about the same. It would have been about the same. The That's only the difference thing. is what, what the only the only difference is you would have still had America's influence. So you you could have potentially said that he might have been muted slightly from his more extravagant extremes, especially in later years. But still, you you never know. And that's for you guys to decide. Yeah. So, yeah, that is Fidel Castro. Another hashtag true story. I enjoyed that. It's- Okay, right, so on to my second. On to the second subject this week. Right, so this week for my second subject, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Wright brothers. The famous Wright brothers. The famous Wright brothers. The Wright brothers are widely credited with inventing the first operational airplane. A bit of technology which has pretty much changed the world um, since its invention. Imagine how much smaller the world is now that planes exist and that you can get from New York to London in a few hours, whereas previously it would be weeks. Yeah. It is a massive, massive change. Um, the world has made, been made so much smaller. Yeah. So a massive influence uh, they've had on on the world with their invention. Wilbur Wright was born on the 16th of April, 18, 1867, and 
Orville Wright was born on the 19th of August, 1871. They were two of seven children of Milton Wright, uh, who was a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren in Christ, and Susan Kerner. They were both meant to have been intelligent, curious children and confident in their abilities. Their father, from an early age, encouraged them to think for themselves and follow their intellectual pursuits. And from an early age, they had an interest in flight. Um, and one of the, they pointed back to, uh, in later years, uh, a key moment for them was when their father gave them a toy helicopter. Okay. It was actually able to fly. And they they played with it until it, it wore out and it couldn't work anymore. And so they built a new one themselves. So okay. from a very, very early age, they've, as kids, they were they were interested, and they they came they come across as very much tinkerers. I would say, kind of they 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 instinctually could kind of play they, around with things, play like around with things, and figure out something. They, yeah. they they they'd be able to take something apart and then figure out how to do it better. Yeah, they were very good at that, and it came across like that from a, a very early age. Neither attended college, uh, although Wilbur did initially plan to attend Yale but he was injured in a hockey accident and failed, um, failed his exams subsequently because he, kind of, he was still recovering from this quite severe injury by the sounds of things. While in recovery, uh, Wilbur spent the next three years um, helping his father with uh, legal issues who, which he was going through um, at the time. His father was a bishop of uh, a section of the church which was very conservative and they had a lot of legal cases with other sections of the church, and he was helping out with, with some of those legal issues. He also um, took to caring for his mother, who was severely ill at the time, um, as well, uh, during those three years. Their mother died, though, um, of tuberculosis in 1889. Orville, who'd been learning the printing trade, talked uh, Wilbur into starting a printing shop with him. Uh, they built up a bit of a reputation locally for the quality of the presses they designed and sold to other printers. So again, this is their tinkering coming into into practice here, yeah. where they were taking something that's already exists and making it better and selling it on. Um, they were still printing themselves. In fact, they, um, for a short period of time, uh, printed their own um, local newspaper, which one was the editor, the other one was the uh, publisher. So they, they, for a short time, they they made their own newspaper. It only lasted a short period of time, though. But they 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 sold a, a lot of prints to other local printers, and they were they were praised for the the high quality of their their printers. Cool. So they're developing their skills as like mechanical engineers yeah. from from yeah. A, yeah. Earlier point. By the end of the 19th century, bicycles were becoming a bit of a craze and the brothers developed an interest themselves. In 1892, they opened a bicycle sale um, and repair shop, but by 1896, they were actually designing and building some of their own and selling them on. Oh, cool. Um, so they, were, they, they, they started off selling 
um, bikes and, really and, made, and yeah. repairing bikes. But with their tinkering and repairing, they thought, all right, let's give it a go. Let's design some of our own. Design our own and they, yeah. they, they started designing some of their own bikes and selling them as well. That's cool. Ever since the toy helicopter that their father gave them um, as children, they'd had this interest in flight. But it wasn't until they read about the death of a glider pioneer, Otto Lillenfall, uh, that their drive to develop something really kicked in. Uh, the following few years, they read anything they could get their hands on on aviation. They even wrote to the Smithsonian for book recommendations on aviation. aviation. So they're really swatting up on aviation on the the previous research that's already already that's, been done on it because um, cool. they had this massive interest. They're, they're, they're still running this printing business. They're still running their bike shop and it's making them enough money that they can start going into other areas. That's cool. That's like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like that's their passion, like Elon yeah. Musk and space. Yeah. They, they, do you know what? That's, that's a brilliant, I hadn't thought about that, but that is a brilliant example. That's what come, they come across as, like an Elon Musk of kind of the later 19th century, early 20th century. So they've got their own business on the side, yeah. but they want to put their... Yeah, their passions. Passion in, yeah, and they want to put their, their resources into their passion. Yeah. Yeah. And this stuff changed the world, like kind of like what Elon Musk wants to do. In 1900, they made contact with Octave Chanu, uh, who was an expert on aviation and a civil engineer, they would remain in contact with him and he became a confidant to the brothers while they researched. So he's a, an expert in the field and a civil engineer himself and they would they could communicate with him. Uh, they took to the problem like every other mechanical problem they'd had so far. Uh, they believed that the gliding pioneer, Lillenfall, uh, had built wings with enough lift to carry him. The propulsion would be supplied by combustion engines that they already believed were light enough and small enough and efficient enough to propel a plane. Uh, the real problem they, they saw before they even started kind of with their designs was going to be the control of the plane, yeah. being able to steer it. Before now, most of the um, pioneers of gliding because it was mainly gliding that they were doing, they were building gliders and kind of trying to fly as far as they could get uh, with a glider. Their main designs were all about kind of being at a controlled altitude, basically. But there was nothing really about, and it was it was more along the lines of it stayed in a straight line until the pilot did something. Yeah. What the brothers wanted to do, they wanted something that you always had control of. You always had your hand on it, and it was your will that was steering it. Yeah. Rather than it does something until you do something. Yeah. Okay. They started with a biplane kite using the wing warping approach in 1899. They found that they could get the kite climbing, diving, and turning with this approach. What wing warping is, is basically you, you bend the, the wing up or down slightly on one of the wings and it will turn it yeah because one wing will be getting more lift than the other that's cool after this success with the kite and finding that they could control 
the kite to the degree they wanted, they began designs for their first glider. They wanted the most optimal conditions to test their glider, so they requested a list of locations from the US Weather Bureau. They ended up choosing Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. It's by the coast. It's kind of very beachy, lots of sand, uh, and windy. So you can imagine the perfect place for things like kites and gliders. Yeah. So that's why they chose it. Obviously the soft sand, so if there is something that happens, you're less likely to die. <laughs> yeah. It's a simple fact. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these... Soft sand, yeah. Yeah. Um, like this, uh, the pilot, I believe, actually died in a in a kite in a glider accident. Yeah, so yeah. previously, so it does it did happen yeah. a lot. The first glider was a biplane with a wing area of fifteen square meters. The glider didn't give them as much lift as they expected, though, and they they didn't manage to fly it that often. Out of all the attempts, it was only a handful of times they actually managed to get off the ground. So the maths wasn't adding up. They did all the calculations. They believed that this uh, wing area should give them enough lift and they just weren't getting the lift they, yeah. they, they were expecting. They increased the wing area uh, to 26 square metres with their second design in 1901. And they managed to complete uh, between 50 and 100 glides. The longest distance that they managed to get was 120 meters. Even with the greater success, the glider didn't provide them the lift they expected, nor the control they wanted. Uh, due to their first two gliders not giving the lift that they expected, they started to believe that their predecessors' results had been errors and that the data they gathered was, wasn't correct. Was false. Yeah, and they the were figures, making it up, yeah. Uh, well, not just wrong data yeah. it could have been just quite easily human error um, a lot of these I can imagine a lot of these weren't technically scientists yeah to test this they built a small wind tunnel in their, in their workshop and gathered their own data so they built a wind tunnel in their workshop this is proper geeky stuff yeah they built a wind tunnel in their in their workshop to test out all these different wing designs, and they tested out over a hundred different wing designs and shapes to gather their own data and started again. See what was the best. Uh, That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. With their new data, they began designing their third glider. They tested their new glider in September and October of uh, 1902, and this time the calculations matched the performance perfectly. So they've done all these tests and it's proven that the data previously was wrong because yeah. now it's matching up perfectly. Uh, they completed over 700 flights with the, the longest travelling, 189.75 metres, and staying in the air for 26 seconds. As well as solving the lift problem, with this fur design, they added a movable rudder, which fixed the control issue as well. So obviously in the back, you obviously with planes, you've got a, a rudder, haven't you? And they, so they've added this to the design, and it's added an extra layer of control to their planes that they wanted. 
Now that they'd landed on a design that provided the lift and the control they needed, they moved on to adding the propulsion. With the assistance of an employee of theirs, Charles Taylor, they designed and built a four-cylinder internal combustion engine. Using their winds tunnel, uh, they were also able to design and build twin pusher propellers. On the 14th of December 1903, Wilbur made the first attempt at powered flight, but the craft stalled on takeoff and was damaged. Now, before I go any further, um, just a little note that most of these test flights were done by Wilbur up until this point. Okay. so was Wilbur rather than I, I'm not sure, but Wilbur did a lot of the early test flights. Although um, his brother did actually kind of end up doing loads of flights himself, but early on, it was a lot of it was was Wilbur doing the flying. The older brother. They spent the next three days repairing the craft and also waiting for uh, decent weather conditions to try again. On the 17th of December, 1903. Orville this time made an attempt and made history with the first successful flight of a powered plane. It travelled 36 metres in 12 seconds. So it wasn't a long flight, but it was the first time ever that a propelled aircraft had travelled through the air. Yeah. A manned one anyway. Wilbur managed in the second attempt... And his first, well, his first successful attempt, uh, a distance of 53 metres in 12 seconds, so slightly further in the same amount of time. Orville had another go. They're still on the same day. Yeah. Orville had another go um, and managed to do a distance of 60 metres in 15 seconds. And on the final flight of the day, Wilbur managed to fly 259 metres. Bloody hell, that's interesting. And in 59 seconds. You can tell that he's a slightly more experienced flyer at this time because he's getting a better distance. Um, That's a ridiculously bigger distance though, isn't it? They must have just tinkered around a little bit. Yeah, well, tinkered around a bit and just getting used to it. Like I said, Wilbur was doing a lot of the the early flights and he was the more experienced at this present moment in time. As I said, Orville, in the end, ended up being... Oh, it's just as experienced as flyer as his brother, but early on it was um, Wilbur doing a lot of the flying, and it was probably a case of first go, obviously crashed. Played. Second go, he got in the air, but he's still getting used to the controls. Played it safe. Yeah. Third go, go for it. Yeah, yeah. The ne- next few years uh, was spent improving on their design, and by the end of 1905, they could manage to stay in the air for up to 39 minutes. Can we just pause there a second and feel that excitement in your stomach? Do you feel that? Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Like, at that time, this this was unheard of. Yeah. Humans didn't fly. You didn't have people in the air. That was that was ridiculous talk. Yeah. And they're, they're doing it. They're, they're breaking through boundaries that people just didn't expect to be yeah. broken through. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling and as I said right at the beginning it changed the world as we know it um, in just a few years after this there were <laughs> we talked about the Red Baron yeah just a, this is 10 years ten after years later, after, yeah. he is he is a fighter pilot using this in war using this technology in war in vastly different in vastly planes. different ways and then 
you, you're going another few decades after that and you've got jet planes. Yeah. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's crazy. What this did. And these are the pioneers of this. At this point, they decided, after they'd, what they felt perfected their design, uh, obviously they could fly, basically, they could stay up for a long distance, 39 minutes up in the air, just flying around, doing loop-to-loops and, and just doing turns and whatever they wanted. Yeah. They've, they've perfected their it's design. Done. They're done. At this point, they decided to keep their plane on grounded. It was getting harder and harder for them to hide their successes. It was, they, were, they, weren't, they didn't want to come forward to the press straight away. Um, but it was leaking out. It was leaking out that they were they were There's making these, guys these breakthroughs in this machine yeah, that's going were, through the air. Because obviously, yeah, you're flying around. <laughs> yes. it's, it's completely obscene. It's, it's bonkers. So they decided to ground the plane temporarily, mainly because though they were worried that other people who were trying to develop planes still their power, ideas. would steal their ideas just by looking at. Watching, watching the plane fly and having a look at it. So they kept it. They kept it on the hush hush and kept it quiet while they were, had patent applications going through and also tried to get a sales deal through. In February of nineteen oh eight, they signed their first contract. Uh, this was with the U.S. Army, and it was to provide a single aircraft to them that would be able to fly a pilot as well as a passenger in the air for an hour at a speed of up to 40 miles an hour. That was their first contract. And it was for £25,000. So a big chunk, chunk of change. A huge amount of money, yeah, for that time. And that was their first contract. At a similar time, their second contract was signed with a group of French investors for a similar deal. This is where the brothers split up for a short period of time. Wilbur uh, travelled to France in the second half of 1908 and amazed the public with his first public flight. So now now they've got their con- they've got these contracts signed. Their patents. Their patents deal Jeez. sorted. They're now now willing to go come forward. And obviously the centre of the world at that present at that time was Europe. Yeah. Um so he goes he goes to France and uh, debuts his 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 plane and and, and wows the audience with, with with his first flight. You just try to put that on a scale with now. What would you have to see now to feel that amazement? It's really hard. It's, it's especially yeah. no, because also you've got to take into consideration we've got movies now, so that kind of numbs you to different ideas. Just seeing it in front of you. This is something people weren't even thinking about. The general public <laughs> weren't even thinking. Oh, I can fly in the air at some point. I can travel di- distances through the air. Yeah, I, it's difficult to. Do you know what? Like. I don't know. Something like teleportation? Is that the closest thing you uh, could... That could be. That could be. But that or, would give the wow or, factor or, this car. Or, or be able to travel to Mars on a holiday. Yeah. Like suddenly holiday. Elon Musk coming out and saying, like, right, we've got EM engines and we can, we can, we can, you can travel to Mars in, in a few weeks. We're going to do a Mars cruise. Yeah, we're going to do a Mars cruise. <laughs> you can pay, pay like a couple hundred grand and then like, yeah, you can go we do Mars cruise. Yeah, Mars cruise for a few weeks and then come back. That's yeah, that's pretty much. And that no, but that's coming out of the blue. That's not like yeah, that's uh, that's not working to that. That's like coming out of the this, blue. This guy's just we've suddenly up. dropped this technology yeah. that's completely re- revolutionised humans' way of life and way yeah. you look at the world. So he's bonkers. 
It was absolutely bonkers. He then, after that first initial flight, spent the next few months in Europe, taking elites of Europe uh, on flights in France, as well as uh, a few in Italy as well. Selling his product, basically. Yeah. Obviously, you want the elites interested. They're the ones who can actually buy the thing. Yeah. Um, while Wilbur was in Europe, Orville stayed in the US and began trials on the plane for the US Army. So they're, they're splitting. One's dealing with European investors and trying to get out more business, and the other one's dealing with the business of the US Army and trying to get that deal sorted. The contract for the plane, as I mentioned, did stipulate that it'd be able to travel for a certain length of time, for an hour, in the air at 40 miles an hour. On a test flight in September of 1908, Orville was injured in a crash and his passenger actually died. He was quite seriously injured. Um, While in recovery, Orville actually joined his brother in Europe while he was recovering. Um... That was before both brothers returned to the US in 1909 to complete the trials. Their plane exceeded expectations um, and the US Army actually gave them a $5,000 bonus because it, it actually exceeded it. It was actually went faster okay. than they, they first expected. In November of 1909, they set up the Wright Company Incorporated. And they opened a factory and a flying school. While Orville spent time training pilots, Wilbur, as the president of their company, dealt with a lot of the business side of things. And that included a lot of lawsuits. They already had people that were infringing on their patents and kind of nicking their ideas. And had a lot of problems um, trying to hold up their patent claims because, yeah, it was just... People, they were just paying the fines and just carrying on. There it, it was a lot of people basically taking their ideas and using it for themselves. Yeah. And becoming a competitors to them. And Wilbur spent most of his time dealing with that. And it seemed very stressful for him. Um, Wilbur actually died in 1912 at the age of 45. On the death of his brother, Orville took control of the right company but sold his stake in 1915 to the investors. After this, he, he was celebrated across the US, and as you can imagine, he received loads of honorary, honorary degrees, and he was, he was given memberships to loads of different organisations. But he wasn't one for public speaking, and he preferred to spend most of his time after then with friends and family. He, he did spend quite a bit of time arguing the case that they were the first people to have motorised flight because um, the Smithsonian in Pacific, in, in particular, actually um, uh, disputed his claim for a while, uh, their claim for a while, and uh, saying that one of their, uh, one of the people who previously worked in the Smithsonian actually did it uh, a few years earlier, and he, they, he actually donated their aircraft, their their first flying plane, for show in London, uh, in spite of the Smithsonian. To spite them and said like we won't we won't lend, oh we won't lend you um, the plane there. the plane until you apologise and agree Say that, that we, we were the, the first yeah. to do it because that's the thing there are a few claims aren't there that they weren't yeah. quite the first because it's in that period there was quite a few people yeah, going trying for to it. do the same thing but the but a lot of the 
the the reason the Wright brothers stand out is that there is less, there is a hell of a lot less disputes over their claim than there is to the others. Yeah. That, that well, there's there's so much evidence for their massive success. Yeah. Whereas there's not the same with others. No. So even if they're even if the others did it maybe slightly confident. earlier, they did it better. They they did it better and they proved it better yeah. as well. Like they gave yeah. yeah. He spent the remainder of his life basically um, trying to really stay out of the public eye. Orville died in January of 1948 at the age of 76 after suffering a heart attack. So it's a monumental thing that they achieved. A the monumental thing. Tinkerers. Yeah. Two guys out of passion. Yeah. And it and it changed the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously today's tinkerers are all in the computer world now, aren't they? They're the... They're the then the, the internet billionaires who who make a social network or a search engine or something. Yeah. That's that's where all that tinkering goes to now. But back in back then, it was innovations like this. Again, as we've said, it, was, it must have been such a crazy thing to see a plane for the first time and just not even consider that being an option, yeah. that being an idea. Just thinking about it gives the excitement in the belly, you know. Yeah. Imagine seeing it first time. Imagine being on a plane for the first time, like that. Terrifying. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. But uh, exhilarating as well. Yeah. And yeah, I, I said very impressive, very impressive pair of brothers. Definitely the right brothers. Thank you for listening to Hashtag True Story. If you would like to follow us, you can reach us on Twitter at The True Story Pod or on our Facebook page, True Story Podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your equivalent Android podcast app. Five stars would be absolutely lovely and it would really help us in getting heard. See you next time. <laughs>